But yeah, that thought, God is never only doing one thing at a time. He's doing so many things. This is an important thought for us because it's one of those thoughts that should expand our concept of God. It also brings us into comparison with him because the minute you try to understand God, you're actually limiting him. Oh, God is love, and this is what that means. And then all of a sudden you try to like figure out what that means and think about what that means. And any idea that we could have about God is going to be one that unfairly limits who he actually is. It's like a piece of the puzzle. So the passage that I was reading and why I started thinking about this is the Battle of Jericho. We're reading through the book of Joshua. We're coming up to this battle. And I thought, God is doing so many different things for so many different people at the same exact time here. Think of what he was doing for Joshua in that moment. Wow, he's making a battle happen that, that was prophesied to him is going to work a certain way and then it works. What, what is that going to do for Joshua's faith? But simultaneously... All these warnings that the people had in that land, the people of Jericho, God's people are coming. Instead of embracing them or like Rahab trying to join them, they fight against God. What is God doing to those people that rebel against him and reject him in that moment? What are they experiencing from God at that exact same time? What lesson is being learned from the people of Israel about Joshua? And is he really God's messenger or is he not? Well, the stuff is starting to happen the way he said God said it would happen. So it's unifying the nation under Joshua's lead. What does the battle mean for Rahab? She's part of the city of Jericho, but she's not going to be destroyed or anyone in her whole entire family because of her faith. What does it mean for all the nations around? What does it mean for the spies who are sent in? And then Joshua gets them and says, okay, we're about to go in. Go and get Rahab and her family and bring them out. All these people are having different experiences, but it's one event. This is very much what we experience as well. This is one church family. How many different events are happening simultaneously in all of our lives? Right now at this moment, we're experiencing some joys. And we're experiencing some tragedies. If you expand it beyond this church family to the church as a whole, our brother Danny Kroos, he's experiencing deep, deep loss. And just last weekend, we celebrated a wedding. Those are all God things, and God's in each of them. So why does it feel like so many different things are happening? Is God the same? Like, is, is it fair or good or just that bad things can be happening and good things could be happening? Like, How does God work that all out? So here's the, the nugget of truth, that great thought shared in the gospel, Jesus' love and truth. Um, here's the nugget of truth. There are two common elements to all of these circumstances, to all of circumstances in our lives. One is our sin, and the other is God's grace. That's all of our experiences, our sin and God's grace. Everybody has one of those, but not everybody has the second. Everyone experiences, participates in, is affected by sin, but not everybody experiences and is saved by God's grace. And in this battle of Jericho, you see those that reject God and you see those that embrace him. And it doesn't matter where they were born. Rahab was born in the foreign city. So it's not just us and them, insiders and outsiders. It's anyone who will respond to God. So God in one moment is proving himself to be just. And at the same exact moment is proving himself to be faithful to his promises, and at the exact moment is showing his power, and at that exact moment is showing his mercy, it's not him who's changing. It's all the different people that are coming into contact with God. God is one. God is unity. It's us 
who are the variables. I want to put it in a math equation, which I know nothing about, but if I did, I'd say something like, God is the constant. The variables are the people. So who are we in relationship to God? If God is, since God is entering into our lives right now, what will he find? Who will he see us to be? How will he respond? He'll respond according to his justice and his mercy. And that's where grace comes in, and that's where Jesus comes in and takes us. Because if we don't have the grace, then all we have is the sin, which is common to all of us. And in this situation, we see uh, it's not just because the Jewish people were all righteous and all perfect and all everything. They were just chosen by God in that moment. That's what he was showing them. And I just loved the thought this week of the complexity of God and not wanting to simplify him. You know, when we say God is love, even that statement is kind of like wrong in a way. It's so simple. It's too simple. It's too limiting. God is way more than that. And so if this passage can help us encourage uh, our brains to stretch a little bit and think about God from a bigger picture and then think about, well, okay, if God is entering into our lives here, what's he going to find? And who am I with him and how can I call to him for grace? Because it didn't matter that Rahab was in the, the foreign city. Uh, she called out to God and he saved her. So if you'll read with me, we're in Joshua chapter 6. We're just going to read the account of the fall of the city of Jericho. And then we're going to think about these things together. God, please bless the reading of your word. Joshua chapter 6, verse 1. So now Jericho was closed up, both inside and outside because of the people of Israel. No one went out and none came in. So we've entered into kind of a siege of the city. The city is closed and Israel is outside of it. Now the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and its mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. And this you shall do for six days. Now seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat. And the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city. Let the armed men pass on before the Ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord following them. And the armed men who were walking before the priests were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the Ark while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, You shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout, and then you shall shout. So he caused the Ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about it once. They came into the camp, and they spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. And the seven priests, bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord, walked on, and they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day, they marched around the city once and returned to camp. And so they did for six days. Now on the seventh day, they rose early. 
at the dawn of day, and they marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you... Keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of the Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. All the silver and gold, every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted. And the trumpets were blown. And as soon as the people heard the shout of the trumpet, and the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her, as you swore to her. So the young men who brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her, and they brought out all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Then Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation. At the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. And so the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. So is this fair? Is this good? Is God good? We have the complete leveling of a city. And these are important questions that we need to be able to answer for ourselves if we're going to come to God and say, God, will you love me? Am I safe? Are you good? Is it fair? Some were saved and some weren't, right? In our, in our world here today, over the last, say, two weeks, three weeks, We've heard about two missing children, one being Danny Cross's son and the other being a girl named Colleen in our hometown of Rainham. As time has gone on and we've prayed and waited upon the Lord, Colleen was found safe and is being, if not already has been, returned home. And Danny Cross's son was lost. One was rescued, one was saved, one was found, one was lost. We say, well, how is that fair? How, how, do we, how do we know how to like, trust you, God, when we don't know if things are going to work out the way we pray? We pray all the time, save. And sometimes you answer that way and sometimes you don't. Why are the oxen being killed if for the sins of the people? Like, what, what does this mean? And these are tricky things to think about, but they're super important. Don't run away from hard questions. Because they'll actually, if they don't get answered, they'll nag at the back of your mind and they'll undermine your faith until you get them answered. But really what we have here is one of those limiting thoughts of our own understanding 
not any blame or fault on God. And we're going to explain that, and we're going to look at it, and I'll, I'll tell you why. Don't turn there, but let me read to you a statement that Moses makes to the people of Israel as they are about to go into the promised land. If you're making a note, you want to read it later. Just listen now. But it's in Deuteronomy 9. Why did God overthrow Jericho? Why punish them? Why bless Israel? Here's why. Deuteronomy 9, verse 1, Moses says, Hero Israel, you are about to cross over the Jordan today. So this is rewinding before this moment, and Moses is saying what they will experience. You're about to cross over the Jordan today to go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than yourselves. Cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the sons of the Anakim whom you know, and of whom you have heard it was said, who can stand it before the sons of Anak? Know therefore today that he who goes over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you. So you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised you. But, this is so important, please, because this, this signifies how we stand before God and how we think of him. But do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you, that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. Can I get an amen? We're God's people. We're a stubborn people. Every blessing that we experience is not because of our righteousness. It's because God is accomplishing some purpose. In this moment, God is actually asking the Israelites to have the very unenviable, in some cases it must have been just like heart-wrenching task, of being his executioners. What if God called us to be that today and we didn't want to? We looked at these people and said they're just people, but because of God's anger at their sins and their rejection of him, he said, take up your swords and your guns. Please execute my judgment. Like, I hope that that was heartbreaking for the Jews, not just, yay, hooray, God, but we're being forced. We need to be obedient. God has tasked us, not because we deserve a promised land, but because he's a just God, he wants us to be his messengers in this moment of justice. See, the truth of it is, all of us are going to die. All of us will face the justice of God. It just may be sooner, or it may be later. And these people, while they saw God parting the Jordan River, they're looking out over their walls and seeing miracles happen, they're getting word of it. There's only one family in that whole city that says, I think I want to join that God. I don't want to stay here. Did you see what just happened? Have you heard the rumors of what happened in Egypt when people fought against God? 
Anyone in Jericho could have been saved. We know this to be true because of the story of Jonah and Nineveh. An entire city, when it heard about God's wrath, was like, I want nothing to do with that wrath. What do I have to do? Get on your knees and pray. Seek the grace. We've all got this sin. It's not because of our righteousness, but it's those who seek the grace that'll be saved. So all of Jericho was just experiencing God's fair, equitable, just punishment for their sin. And actually, instead of it being just this wonderful triumphant victory march on Israel, I think about what it would have been like if I lived in Israel right then and I would have been tragically devastated to follow through on God's command there. And yet at the same time, know that he's giving me what he promised. But at the same time, say, there but for the grace of God go I. If I I didn't turn to God, then I would deserve that punishment as well. And so this isn't a God who picks and chooses who to save and who not to save. There, There is a bad theology out there that says God is sort of like uh, flipping a coin in heaven and he just picks who goes to heaven, who goes to hell. You're saved, you're damned, you're saved, you're damned. Double predestination, this, this concept, double election. I elect you to go to hell and I elect you to go to heaven. When in reality, everyone has been elected to go to hell because we all sin. And everyone is offered the opportunity to turn to God to receive grace. And it's only those who don't accept the free gift, the offer. Jesus, the cross is empty and it's open to all. It's an open door. Come to the Father. But there are some like those in Jericho that say, I'm too bad. I couldn't. That's against me. I want nothing to do with that. I'm afraid. I'm going to protect what I have. I'm going to build up my walls. I'm going to build up my defenses. Somehow I'll get through. And God says, no, I'm God. Your defenses are no match for me. No matter how tall your walls or how big your fighters or what you're putting trust in, it's not going to stand up ultimately to God when he says, turn to me. But the worst person in the worst city gets saved. And I love that. The prostitute in the fallen city and all of her family gets saved. And there's God's grace. That was available for all. And he wasn't just saying, you're my chosen people. You get all the good stuff. You're my condemned people. Too bad for you. For God so loved the entire world that he sent his son, that whoever believes, so there's our response, might be saved and have eternal life. There is the free gift. Another place in the Bible says God does not want anyone to be lost, but wants all men to be saved. He's not slow in keeping his promises. He's being patient, wanting everyone to come to him. So the God we serve is not a judgmental, kind of like Greek mythological sort of God, just arbitrarily smiting people and saving people. He's being faithful to what he finds when he comes to us. And it doesn't mean we have to be righteous. And it doesn't mean we have to be strong enough. It doesn't mean we have to have the right answers. It means we are the people who know how to get on our knees and say, I'm sorry, forgive me, save me. That's what the cross is. It's saving being saved. Not because we deserve it, not because Rahab deserved it, not, you know, God's just being just and fair. This is our story as well, and the question isn't whether we're going to die and face the justice of God. It's going to be whether he sees in us a penitent heart, a desire for grace. And if so, just that desire and seeking after grace, that is what it takes. That is the kernel of faith. God, I believe in you. Please save me. Jesus, save me. Hosanna, save us. 
So the three pieces which I've put up on the wall, which to me are the three most important things to think about when we look at this passage are the ban, and then the falling of the walls, and then the fire, the burning at the end. Mine said in this ESV translation, are the things devoted to destruction? Some of you may be reading in the NIV or a different translation, it said things under the ban. Does anybody have that when they're under the ban? The ban were the things that were of that city that were not meant to be brought into the people of God's homes. It could be their possessions, it could be (coughs) their wealth, their material possessions, uh, the idols that they had in their homes. All these sorts of things were just supposed to be under the ban. Items devoted to destruction. There are so many things that we could get from just thinking about the ban. Let let me throw some of them at you to please take into your heart. Because God today also says, protect yourselves from things of this world. There are things under the ban today. Remember when Jesus is talking to his disciples? uh, He says, whatever you bind and whatever you loose on earth will be bound or loosed in heaven. Like, prohibit people from certain behaviors and encourage certain behaviors because there's a ban. We don't want to be corrupted by the world. The fact that God said destroy it all shows that this is not a vindictive God just telling his people go rape, loot, and plunder and become rich. The conquest of the promised land was not about becoming rich. It was not for personal gain. None of the individuals gained a thing from it because it wasn't just a capricious God spoiling his elect people. It was him sending his people in to execute his judgment. So they're not gaining anything from it except the trauma of fighting a battle on God's behalf and then the powerful recognition of God making it happen miraculously. This ban proves God's goodness in the midst of a complete overthrow of a city. If that ban isn't there, then you have a fair case. I have a fair case for saying God sent people in and they just took stuff and they got rich off of it and they moved on. That's a really good God. You're not going to get anything from this. You're still going to have to rely on God because you're burning all this stuff that you could have used. But also, all these things in this wicked city are going to slowly corrupt and twist you. The ban is to protect you from taking those things into your life. And this is where it gets real practical for us, too. We're supposed to live in the world, but not of the world. But how many things of the world do we take into our homes? Our homes are filled with so many things that take our attention off God, or maybe just outright, like, um oppose him. Maybe it doesn't look like a statue sitting on a shelf that you bow down to and that you worship. But there are so many things in our lives that are of the world. And God's saying, I'm actually going to let you just go into this land with a clean slate. Don't take any of it in. But why kill off the young and the old? Well, the young being raised in that place, they're going to want to get married at some point too, right? So all the future children that you have now, if you bring the young in, You're setting yourselves up for intermarriage between people that worship idols and people that worship Yahweh. One of the most like clear statements of like the despicable lostness of that time was the sacrifice of children in that day and age. Common practice. You killed your babies for the sake of the harvest, for the sake of the rain, to appease Baal, and that was just common practice. We're not talking about a couple of pretty good people and like God picks this one over this one because this one's 51% good and this one's 49% bad. It's not like that. There was like a lostness and utter depravity to it. 
And what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Like, the, like everything that happens there is just like anything goes and none of it's of God. And so God is saying, I'm protecting you by not letting you take any of their people into your people. He said, was it fair that they would die then? All of them are going to die anyway. All of us are going to die anyway. And whether God's judgment comes at that moment or when we close our eyes peacefully at age 88, it does not matter. We have a short life and our job is to recognize we're all sinful, but God has grace and to reach out for it. And so those that responded that way, God was fair and just and welcoming. And those that didn't experience the justice then that they would have eventually experienced. So is it right to die young versus die old? That's not our choice and it's a trick question to begin with. God is fair and we see in the ban his protection of his people. We see in the ban his motives. The motives are pure. They're simply to show God's glory. So sinful things get thrown away with and people that follow God experience grace. This ban is a wonderful thing. We we often think of God and, and religion as being kind of like, don't do this, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that. So think in your own mind, like, the top three things that you think, uh, you don't have to say them out loud, but just identify them, one of the top three things that God says don't do. All right, just picture them in your mind. Everybody have maybe some of the same, some different. What if God has put a ban on those things for your good? What if God has put a ban on those things so you don't get dragged down like the rest of the world around you? What if God's put a ban on those things so you can grow and thrive in a place he wants to bless? What if God's put a ban on those things because he has a better way and we can't see it, but we're limited and we just need to be obedient and then see down the road. Oh, that's why that was so amazing. The ban is for the good of those that follow God that are called according to his purpose. So the ban is just an amazing thing to consider. Uh, Completely contrary to military practices, you go in, you take over a city, you take all its wealth, your people get wealthy, you move on, you expand. No, no. God says, you go in, I show my justice, and we move on. And that's where the city walls come down. There's a fall that we see in Jericho before there's the fire, before the ultimate devastation of it all. Um, The walls that Jericho was their pride and joy, what they put their trust in, it didn't even take a soldier to knock them over. Do you remember we looked at last week that there was an angel army of the Lord encamped around Jericho and I just kind of like theorized, I wonder if the angels were the ones that pulled down the rocks at that moment. I still love that thought. I think I'm always going to hang on to that because there's an angel that appears to Joshua and says, I'm here as a commander of the Lord's army and then just do this marching thing and some trumpets and some shouting and then we'll take care of business. And they do that and then the walls come down. How did they come down? I think the angels were there fighting on their behalf and as Moses said, the Lord will go ahead of you and do this. So it all all fits together in a wonderful way. But the things that the people of Jericho said, yeah, that may be God, but I'm protected. And it lasts. We have so many modern versions of this today. I know God will bless us, but I've also got a really big savings account, so I'm okay if things go south. I'm going to trust in that money that I've set aside. Hopefully the last few years have taught all of us, like money just goes when it goes and no one can control it and we certainly can't hang on to it. It's like sand. Um, They trusted in their walls and their armies and that wasn't what was going to get them through. We may trust in our personality. 
I'm good with people. I can work it out. If I lose my job here, I'll just get another one or, or work ethic. I'm a hard worker. I'll work 24-7. If that's what it takes, I'll take on three jobs. We trust in our bank accounts. I've got enough money. I'm not worried. You know, if the bills don't happen or if I lose my job, we're good for a certain amount of period of time. We trust in our family. We're a good family. We, we stick together. We love each other. We help each other. Like These are all worldly constructs that can fall. If you're trusting that your friends and family will be there for you every step of the way, sometimes we hit a rude awakening that the people we love most have not been there or are not there for us. And that's because we all have the sin part, even though we all need the grace part. Um, so if we're just trusting in people in our lives to be okay, that will fall. That'll be a wall, something that we trust in that's not there. Money, jobs, health. And in those moments, how far we fall depends on how much we've leaned on God's grace. So there's things in the band, there's things that Jericho was trusting uh, for their safety and for their security. And ultimately when we die, none of those things can stand before God on our behalf. So they don't help us stand or fall. They're temporary things that go away. I think we would do well to consider what are the things that we think, I'm going to be okay because... And then what if those things were gone? And the last one, we've kind of mentioned a few different ways already, but you recognize uh, that the end of this city ultimately was just being burned by fire, like nothing left. Um, Peter in the New Testament says, since this whole world is going to eventually be consumed by fire, how then should we live? There's this sort of anticipation that the end of things is going to be this like all-consuming destruction of the world as we know it. But we're all going to die anyway. So rather than spending all our time wondering how the fire is going to come or how long it's going to be or what the source of it is or the timing, the better, wiser question is how should we live as faithful people, prepared people, ready I'm ready to die today, if that's what God calls for me. I hope all of us here are ready for that. Because if it comes today or if it comes when I'm 88 in my sleep, it, it'll be the time where I stand before God. And guess what? He's going to look at me. He's going to be like, man, dude, you're really sinful. Like for a long time. Like basically every waking moment of your life, your entire life. <laughs> But I see in you someone who sought after me that when you sinned, it didn't fit right. And you're like, I want to get this off of me. I want to change this. Free me. And you kept coming back to me. So your heart was for me, even though you're no different than any of the people around you. And because of that heart, well, now let's just put away the body. That thing's done. Just spirit to spirit, soul to soul, come and find rest. And I have confidence that that's going to happen because every time I find myself in sin, my heart says, Jesus, come on, save me again. And then he does, and you get that feeling of freedom instead of the stuck in the mess feeling. And that's all of our experiences. So God's not picking favorites. He's not making it any easier on one than on other. It's different versions of the same thing. We struggle with temptations. We struggle with weakness. We struggle with fear. All these things. But the Bible says there's no temptation that you have experienced except which is common to every single person. And God is faithful and will always provide you a way out. Jesus himself was tempted in all the big ways. Everything. 
And yet he kept seeking God's will. And so he went through it sinless. We're not going to get through this life sinless, but we can get through this life forgiven. And that's what's going to make the difference. So Jericho experienced its fire and it was leveled. So will everything else in this world. So will we. It's like trial by fire, saved through fire. New Testament uses that phrase as well, uh, that we might be saved as those escaping through the fire. So when I see the Battle of Jericho, I don't just see a miraculous story of people who marched around a city and then blew a trumpet. To me, that's the miracle to show that it was God. But what I see is the importance of being right with God, not being perfect, but being repentant, loving God, and seeking after Him no matter what He calls us to do. I see the importance of setting up the ban in our own lives, not legalistically, but just like this world is no good for us. And I don't want to burn with the rest of it, so what can I cut out? What can I try to stay away from? And maybe we'll be like Achan, we'll read about him next week, where we get tempted and we bring things of the world into our lives, and then God's like, hello, this is what I was trying to protect you from. Well, then that's our moment to just come back to grace. Please forgive us. Please get this out. So the ban is something that's for our good. It's a beautiful thing. And our trust has to be in God only, not in the homes we have and the jobs we have and the good health we have because all that will be taken away eventually, but it can be taken away quick if God is ready to teach us a lesson in trust or in faith. And he does that. And it's for our good when things fall. We see who we really have to trust in, and it's Christ and Christ alone. And with the fire, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And so I look at Jericho and I say, that, that complete destruction, good. Let's, let's, let's do a new heaven and a new earth. <laughs> let's let all the sinful things, let's let all the broken things, let's let all the pain things, all the fear things, let's let that go. It eventually will go. And I'm looking forward to that day where our conversations don't have to be, man, this is my hard struggle today because the struggle part will be past. And we're not saying, oh, I just wish I could see God because we'll just see him and that goodness will be apparent. Um, I encourage us to read Jericho with this eye as to who we are as to what we're trusting in, as to the complexity of God that in one moment he could be doing a million different things. And our job is not to know the beginning for the end. Our job is to know where we stand. What is he saying to us? You know, in a way, it's why we're focusing on the spiritual formation um, things because we kind of want to know, like, how do I devote myself to you? What does it look like in practice? What are the things I can do or that I cannot do? Because that relationship with God is ultimately going to be what passes the test in the end. And whether we get called to the examination shorter term or longer term, we can trust in God's goodness. Even when we see examples in Scripture that feel like so incomprehensible. Like, how could this happen? And what's good and what's not? You see that everyone, God is being just with them. And he's showing his mercy and grace again and again. So I'd like to pray for us this morning that we'll know what... um, our trust is in, that we'll know what a band looks like for us to be people after God's own heart and that um, we'll recognize that that day of reckoning does come for us all and that it won't be a scary thing, but it'll be a joyful thing because we'll be looking forward to freedom from all the stuff that's burning up and with only the good and only God's glory remaining. So let's pray together. Father God, we trust you at your word. We know you are who you say you are. 
We trust your instructions about our lives. We trust your protective restrictions on our lives. We confess to you our failings and know that it's not our righteousness that makes you love us at all. You just love. You are love. And so I pray that we would gladly, humbly, quickly, eagerly put all of our weakness and brokenness at your feet and say, please take it away. Allow us not to justify our actions, to fortify our bad decisions, to double down on things that we should just be confessing and dropping. Father, we trust you with our health. We don't just trust doctors and medicine and nutrition. We trust you with our health. You give and you take away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We trust you with our finances. We don't trust our interest rates or our country's economy or the stableness of our job or our education. Um, you give and you take away, Father, and if you decide to do that in terms of our finances, we will say, blessed be the name of the Lord. You will provide enough, and we will love you for that. In our relationships, we do not trust in our promises or the strength of our will. You know, there's so much out of our control, and we beg you for your strength your mercy, your wisdom, your love, that we might build relationships that reflect you, not just our own efforts. And we not trust in our ability to do marriage well or parenting well or be a good brother and sister in Christ or a good son or daughter. We are not capable of that, Father. We all have that sinful failing in common, but we come to you asking for your grace that you might work through us, that we could actually be a light in those relationships. We need you in all of them. May we trust in you for forgiveness. May we trust in you for reconciliation. May we trust in you for healing in areas of brokenness and after moments of brokenness. You've given you take away, and we always just say, Blessed be the name of the Lord. Father God, please give us clarity, each one of us individually right now in this moment as to where we stand with you. For anyone here not sure of whether they'd be saved through the fire, I pray that you call them to you. Call them to repentance and call them to seeking after you, putting their trust in you. And for all of us who have felt your touch in our lives, appreciated your love extended to us, I pray that you give us a joy in looking forward to the family reunion in heaven with you, the wedding feast. Uh, but also a sense of purpose because the days are short and not all will be saved. So please help us to be of use to you in this world, Father, of some kingdom purpose greater than our own, greater than our search for financial security and independence and um, happiness. May our pursuit for you and our love for those around us who are lost, may it supersede our own thoughts and our own desires and our own wishes. Please give us the joy of helping save the Rahabs of this day out of the city that's about to fall, away from the things that are under your ban, and ultimately to escape unscathed through the fire. So Father, thank you for your love in all these big things and hard things. Thank you for your consistency that we can trust you. 
And I pray that you'd speak to us and just nudge our hearts closer and closer to you as we see what a great and complex and uh, incomprehensible God you are. And we love you for that. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.